Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. So we've got two readings this morning. The first one is from Hosea, chapter 1, verse 1 to 2, verse 11. And I'm reading from the Pew Bibles, so it's on page 1395 if you've got that there. So Hosea, chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery, in departing from the Lord. So he married Goma, daughter of Diblain, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Goma conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Rohamah, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but by the Lord their God. After she had weaned Lo-Rahamah, Goma had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Am-I, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God, the people of Judah, and the people of Israel will be reunited and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. The second reading is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 11. So 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. 
They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Thanks very much, Nicole. If you came with us to that second reading, go back with me, come back with me to Hosea chapter one. Uh, If you were following along in the Pew Bibles, that's on page 1395. Um, Again, welcome to church. We are starting a new series. It's called Books We Don't Read. Uh, For the next 12 weeks or thereabouts, we're working our way through the 12 minor prophets, Hosea being the first of the minor prophets whom we have recorded in our Bibles. Now, many of you will know, if you've been around City Light Church North Adelaide long enough, you'll know that I am a very imperfect pastor. Um, You are looking at a very imperfect pastor. Um, And I want to confess something today. When I was uh, studying at school many years ago, um, and we had to, you know, you had to, you know, at school you had to read books and then write assignments on books. Um, So I think it was back in like year 10, we had to read the book, The Power of One. Anyone read the book, The Power of One? There you go, me and three others. There you go. And uh, I threw the book, confession today, I never read it. (laughs) I didn't read The Power of One, but I did a very interesting assignment on the book, The Power of One. There you go. I am a very imperfect pastor. I did not read The Power of One, and yet I submitted an assignment. I watched the movie. It was a great movie. Um, Anyway. I want you to turn to the person next to you, and I want you, maybe it's like a confession day, I want you to turn to the person next to you and share the book that you haven't read, but that you probably should have read. Does that make sense? So maybe it's a classic that everyone that you know talks about, that great book, but you always go, yes, I should get to that one day, but I've never read it. Um, Chat to the person next to you, or maybe you're like me, you are dodgy, and you... Did something like me. Have a chat to the person next to you. A book that you haven't read, but you probably should have. I won't get you to. Um, I won't get you to publicly confess your dodginess like me. Um, or perhaps you can keep talking about that. We are going to think about um, these twelve books that. Uh, maybe maybe this is not applicable to you. Maybe you love the twelve prophets, but they twelve minor prophets. But they are books that we tend to not run to, um, and that's what we're going to be looking at over the next little while. Um, just to let you know as well, um, Matthew and Abby Ewers had their little baby. He's, uh, she has come into the world, uh, which is wonderful news. Um, Maggie just asked me to pass on uh, to us as a church community that in the next little while, we'll start uh, a little meal train for them, providing them with some meals to help them out as they adjust to um, life with another baby. So um, please watch out for that um, if you're a member of our community on our online Slack environment. Anyway, let's go. Books we don't read. Let me pray as we come to God's word this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all the good things you give us. And we thank you, Father, this morning for your word. Father, thank you that you are a speaking God and you've spoken to us 
through history in many ways and definitively through your son, the Lord Jesus. And so, Father, we pray that as we look at your word, this ancient book of Hosea, Father, please, by your spirit, speak to us. And Father, help us to see, hear, and love Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. It's uh, hard to think of a time when the nation has been in a worse state. Its moral life has sunk to greater and greater depths. Uh, In various parts of our country, crime is on the rise. We've just recently lost a monarch. And inflation and the cost of living is on the rise and politicians don't seem to be able to do anything about it. The old sexual taboos are being rejected. It's very little shame these days as just about anything goes. In politics, integrity has been replaced with intrigue and scandal. Foreign policy is driven no longer by ethics but by, but, but by self-interest. Goes without saying, of course, God is not on the agenda. He's been dismissed from almost every aspect of life in the sphere of religion, and sadly, and in the sphere of religion, things are not much better. Idolatry and immorality have been allowed to spread virtually unchecked. And so many religious leaders now point to other gods or gods of their own invention instead of the one true God of the Bible. And far from condemning sexual immorality and kind of rampant greed in the nation, too often they join in and provide spiritual justification for it. It's a grim picture. Does it sound familiar? If it does, then perhaps it's because you've read through the book of Hosea in the Bible. Because what I've described to you is exactly what the nation of Israel was like in the 8th century BC. I'm sure you've noticed the connection and parallels with today, but I didn't have to twist anything. I read through the book of Hosea and then tried to describe the situation Hosea was speaking into, and it's exactly like ours, wouldn't you agree? Yet in the midst of this gloomy situation, God in his kindness raised up a prophet, a mouthpiece, to be his voice to the people. And just as all those years ago, God spoke into that gloomy world, still today, through the same voice, through the same prophet, God speaks to us through his word by his spirit. If you have Hosea open in front of you right now, Hosea chapter 1, verse 1 opens like this. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. So right at the very beginning of this book of the Bible, this book that we don't often read, we're being told that Hosea is no invention. He was a real man who spoke into a real moment in real history, who spoke to real people with real issues. We can work out from the list of kings mentioned there in verse 1 that he was active 750 years before the Lord Jesus Christ arrived on planet Earth. And by the time Hosea started working, the one nation of Israel had split into two. You can see that on the screen. One nation had split into two. Just imagine the situation in which Victoria had split off from the rest of Australia. I don't know what you think about that. Maybe if you're a passionate South Australian, you're going, yes, that'd be great. 
But just imagine it's happened and now you've got two nations, once united, but now split, two capital cities, I don't know, two monarchs. That's what it's like now in the once united kingdom of Israel. It's a united kingdom no longer. Um, up there in the north, um, you've got um, Israel, kind of confusing, that's what it's called. Sometimes in the Bible it's referred to as Ephraim, um, named after one of the tribes that kind of formed the northern kingdom. And down south, you've got the kingdom of Judah, um, sort of around Jerusalem and things like that, the southern kingdom. And it's in the northern kingdom of Israel that Hosea, this prophet, lived and it's into their circumstances that he preaches or proclaims this prophecy that we've got. Um, Hosea's prophetic ministry spanned about 25 years during the reign of Jeroboam II. And superficially, right, it's a time of peace and prosperity, but God, through the prophet Hosea, is saying that's not actually how things are. They might appear peaceful and prosperous, but scratch the surface and it's very different. The situation is grim. There's corruption underlying every aspect of the society. Social, moral, political, and religious life is pretty corrupt. And as we look at Hosea just for today, the big question as we see God putting this searchlight into the nation, the northern kingdom, He puts the searchlight onto sin, the sin of human beings. And the big question is, what does God make of our sin? The sin of our our own sin, the sin of more corporately, the people of God? How will God respond to this sin and corruption and brokenness? And it's an important question for us to think about as well. As the searchlight shines onto the northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century BC, it also shines onto our hearts and our nation and into our church. As we see our sin exposed, the question should be in our hearts, what does God make of it? How will God respond to it? Well, the answer is quite clear for some in Hosea's day and for some in our world today. They say God is angry. That's how he responds to the sin of human beings collectively and individually. He is furious with us, and as such, he wants nothing to do with us. We're under his condemnation. He metaphorically wants to just wash our hands of us. That's one response. Which to others, they say, no, 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 no. no. God's not like that. That's a very old-fashioned, antiquated view of God, that he is angry. No, God is a God of love. God isn't angry, anger is a human emotion. God wouldn't punish us, he doesn't dismiss us, he loves us. Well, which is right? God is angry or God is love? It's not an academic question, is it? It should be a burning question for all of us. How does God look at you and your life, me and my life, our church life, our nation? Does he look at us with anger or with love? How does he look at Australia, Adelaide, our church, with love or with anger? Well, the message we discover as we look at the book of Hosea is both. The book of Hosea could easily be called a love story, though. Well, two love stories, each kind of interpreting the other. There's the story of um, Hosea's marriage with Gomer, And then there's the other story of God's relationship with his people. 
And it's a relationship of love. God is described in the book of Hosea in the most intimate and personal terms you'll ever find in the Bible. He's described as a divine lover, the husband of his people. Yes, this is a love story for sure, but please, if you like love stories, don't expect it to be like a romantic, dripping with love, you know, kind of like Mills and Boone type story, right? Never a cloud in the sky, the sun shining, there's love hearts just popping around everywhere. It's not like that. It's not like that in real life, is it? And it's not like that with God's relationship with his people. This is a story of love and betrayal. I recall many years ago now pastoring a couple whose marriage was falling apart. And on one occasion I was speaking with the wife and she was abandoned by her husband. He left her. There were a series of infidelities. The husband was also caught up in some drugs and some alcohol. She spoke to me. And and when she spoke to me, she was clearly angry. And at one point in my time with her on this particular occasion, I said, do you still love him? Do you still love him? She said, of course I do, through lots of tears. That's why I feel like this. That's why I'm so angry. Of course I love him. God loves us, and it's because of his love that he's angry with his people. Does God love us? Is he angry with us? Both, says the book of Hosea. They're not contrary, like contradictory responses. They belong together. God in this book is the divine lover and he gives no grounds for complacency. That was the dominant emotion in Israel at the time. Oh yeah, you know, maybe we haven't lived exactly as we should have done, but God loves us. We're his people, we're married to him. God will never judge us. But Hosea is saying, because he loves you, he is also angry with you. God is a loving God and therefore he's a jealous God. But it's his love that gives his people and us hope. I want us to see this morning three truths about God from the book of Hosea. Perhaps we won't normally think of God in these kinds of ways, but here are the three truths. God, he's the jilted lover, Secondly, God, he's the angry lover. And thirdly, God, he is the faithful lover. So first, if you're a note taker, God is the jilted lover. Look with me at Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. It's an extraordinary command to give to a prophet. He's told to marry an adulterous wife. I think the Jerusalem Bible captures the original Hebrew with a bit more clarity and a lot more shock than our kind of nicely toned down English translations. It says, quote, go marry a whore, and get children with a whore, for the country itself has become nothing but a whore by abandoning God. Now clearly, the children didn't exist yet. And some commentators um, suggest that the reference to an adulterous wife here speaks of what's going to happen in the future. 
So she's just a, uh, she's a normal woman, but later she becomes an adulterous woman. But I think it's more likely that Goma is already an adulterous woman. Her behavior in the marriage is simply a continuum of her behavior before it. It's a reflection of her character. You see, just as God showers his love in the first place on those who do not deserve it, a faithless people, so Hosea the prophet is told to shower his love on a faithless woman who continues in that vein throughout their married life. I don't know, imagine for a moment, right, that you are an old friend of Hosea. Um, You're at primary school with him, you're at secondary school with him, you went to the same university as Hosea, Um, you studied different courses, but you were both at evangelical students, right? You were both at ES. Times passed, you hadn't seen him for a while, you hear that he got married, you're a little bit sad that you didn't get an invite, a bit, you know, like jilted, but anyway, you're really keen to meet his new wife. You think, surely... Surely she'll be a keen believer, a great support to the ministry of Hosea that he's gone into, right? So they come to visit you. She gets out of the car. You can't help, though, as she gets out of the car, she goes, whoa, she's wearing a pretty skimpy dress, right? But not to judge a book by its cover. You remind yourself about that. She gets a little bit closer. You can't help but notice that her makeup is a little bit OTT. It's a little bit over the top. But again, you set aside first impressions. They come inside, you get chatting to it, you call him Hosey, right? That's your name. Like you call him old Hosey's come to visit. Anyway, you're there and you're chatting and you sort of turn to Gomer and you say, hey Gomer, what sort of line of work were you in before you met like Hosey? And then, you know, (coughs) coughing, Hosea starts coughing uncontrollably, you know, starts talking about the weather, hay fever's flared up, so you kind of don't get the answer to the question. But you move on. Sometime later, you're kind of chatting to Gomer and you ask, like, what what sort of line of work were you doing before you got married to Hosey? And without any hesitation, she says, oh, I was a prostitute, actually. You can't quite believe it. You don't know what to say. A bit later on, you find Hosea on his own and you you turn to him and say, Hosea, are you okay? Have you lost your faith? How did you end up with Goma? Hosea says, well, God told me to marry a prostitute. It's a way of getting across his message. He said that my marriage to Goma represents his relationship to his people Israel. You see, they certainly didn't deserve God's love, Israel. It wasn't as if God was, I don't know, looking down from heaven at all the nations of the world and he was thinking, you know, which nation of the world could I choose to be my people? I'm looking for the most godly and strong and attractive people of the world. It wasn't like that. God looked at Israel and chose them simply because he chose to love them, not because they were impressive, not because they were strong, not because they were attractive or even useful to him. Moses reminds the people of Israel as they're on the edge of the promised land, about to receive the promise of God. He says this in Deuteronomy, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept an oath that he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
Israel was just like any other nation. God didn't choose them because they were far better than the others. They were faithless just like the rest. And God amazingly chose that nation, that people, to be his bride, to be his covenant people. You know, and Hosea kind of continues, right? Every time the people see me with Goma on my arm or every time they hear news of her latest infidelities and know that she's my wife, they receive a message from God. My life, my marriage is a living parable designed to confront them with the full horror of how they're behaving. Just as Goma is unfaithful to me, so God's people are unfaithful to him. It's all there in verse 2. Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Hosea's very life just reinforced his message. The people assumed that everything was fine. We're God's people. We're fine. He won't judge us. And Hosea says, think again. Can't you see what you're doing? The sin that you think so little about, that you think is just a trivial matter, is an act of betrayal to the God who's committed himself to you in love. It's adultery, you're jilting him. As a pastor, I find that when I meet people, often conversations turn to kind of spiritual matters and I find people are quite comfortable telling me how they feel towards God. Sometimes people say, oh, I love God, he's wonderful. Some people go, I'm not really sure about him, don't really know much about him. Some people are angry with God and even tell me they hate him, and, and that's okay. It's okay to talk about how we feel towards God. But much more important is how God feels towards us. Does it surprise you that God has feelings? He created you and me to live in a relationship of love with him. And throughout the Old Testament, he sent prophets to call people back to himself, pleading with his people to live as his faithful bride. And yet time and time again, the prophets were ignored. And then last of all, he sent his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, again, to invite us to respond to his love. How do you think it feels when we turn, he feels when we turn our back on him? I don't get invited to many parties, but uh, have you ever had that experience at a party, see a group of people talking, and you're kind of keen to join in with that little group of people who are talking, and you kind of, I don't know, you sort of make your way over to that group, and you sort of stand on the edge of the group, and you're kind of listening in, and they know you're there, and you're kind of hoping they're going to kind of open a little gap so you can just like slide in and join in. Have you had that experience where they kind of closed the, tight, the group a little bit tighter? Ever had that? Always. No, I'm not joking. Always me. How do you feel when the, when the circle closes in rather than allows you in? You feel hurt. You feel deflated. Absolutely. How do you think God feels when we close the circle of our lives and don't let him in? It's a terrible way to behave. We've all done it. Perhaps you're thinking, that's not really me. I can see others doing that, but I've accepted the Lord God. I've accepted the love of Christ. Well, that's great. You know, and if you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, it means you belong to God and you belong to his people. You're part of his bride. It's one of the amazing pictures of the New Testament uses of the church, the people of God, that we are the bride of Christ. 
but it leaves no room for complacency. If we've invited the Lord Jesus in, if we're his bride, I think it makes our kind of disobedience against him even worse. Haven't you noticed the closer you are to someone, the worse they can hurt you? The insult of a stranger can be brushed off really quickly, but the argument with a close friend can get you down for days. And the betrayal of a lover, husband or a wife can create wounds that can remain open for years. And if you're someone who knows those wounds, receive this comfort this morning. God knows exactly what you're going through. Because he knows how it feels to be treated like that. Year after year after year after year. God knows what we're going through. He understands the pain in that he sees his own people flirting with other lovers. Going off with the gods of this world. Perhaps bowing down, delighting in his presence superficially on a Sunday or maybe a DG as well. But then going off with all the gods of this world. Wealth and health and success and popularity and profit. Pleasure, career. I know that some of us come from Christian homes, come through youth group, and we've come to Adelaide and we've come to university and you think, yes, now's my chance to break free. You know, spread my wings. No one back home will know. Mum and dad, they don't know. Church leaders, youth group leaders back home, they don't know, they can't see, they won't get upset. Maybe you've already begun to wander. Drift away from Christ. Sure, your folks back home won't see you. Your youth group leader can only see your curated life on Instagram. But God knows. And every time we're disobedient or unfaithful to him, we're, we're jilting him, we're hurting him. God has feelings. That's the message of Hosea, at least one of the messages. He's the jilted lover. But second, he's the... Angry lover, as we pivot to point two. Here we are from verse four, the angry lover. Perhaps you think that's an inappropriate use, uh, word to use of God. Um, you know, isn't anger sinful? Well, yeah, it can be, but not always. Um, I was at a wedding um, recently, and I heard the words that I've, I've often used myself when I take weddings, as the minister turns to the bride or to the groom. You know, will you love him or her? Will you comfort them? Honour them, protect them, forsaking all others, be faithful to them as long as you both shall live, right? You've probably heard those words before as well. They're really solemn words. And when I was at the wedding and the minister read them out, um, realising how solemn these words were, the minister goes, wow, like audibly, like in that full-on moment. It's a bit inappropriate. But he expressed what we should all feel, wow. It's an amazing commitment to make. But imagine for a moment, whatever your situation is in life, that you are a husband and your wife has made that vow to you and you've made it to her. You've shared everything with her. You've showered your love on her. And yet from the beginning, she's not been faithful at all to the marriage vows. She's gone off with other lovers. Oh, she continues to live in your home. She continues to use your money, very rarely with any gratitude. And all the time she's sleeping with other men. And even she's had kids with other men and expects you to look after those kids. How do you feel? You'll be angry, right? 
If you're not angry, then I suggest you don't love her and aren't loving her. Because when someone is that close to you and treats you like that, yes, you're hurt, but you're also angry. No doubt Hosea was angry when Gomer treated him exactly that way. And God was certainly angry with his chosen people, Israel, when they treated him that way. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters and friends, the message of Christianity is above all good news. It's a message that no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter how wicked we've been, God welcomes us all. He loves us. He wants us back. And he's super keen and ready at the drop of a hat to forgive. But we'll only understand the good news if we've grasped the bad news that we don't deserve his love at all, that he's actually angry at us for our sin and our rebellion. Pick up the life of Hosea and Gomer. Time has passed. You kind of wonder about Hosea and Gomer from time to time. Out of the blue, Hosea posts on socials that he's coming to speak at a conference uh, near where you live, and he sends you a message. Gomer isn't around at the moment, he says, and you kind of implicitly know what that means. And he goes, I'm speaking at a conference all day long. I'm wondering, can you mind the kids? Is that okay? And you think that's fine. You've heard about the kids. There's three of them. Anyway, they arrive and the oldest child comes forward and you ask him, what's your name? And he replies, Jezreel. What an extraordinary name. Jezreel is the name of a town not very far away. Everyone knows the name Jezreel. Jezreel is remembered as the place where King Jeroboam's ancestor Jehu has massacred all his rivals and won the throne and the dynasty. So you ask the boy, like, why are you called Jezreel? It was a place of infamy. I don't know, it's, it's a bit like calling a child Columbine or Twin Towers or in Adelaide, maybe like Snowtown. One woman I chatted to a couple of weeks ago said she taught a girl in India called Hiroshima. It's an extraordinary name. Well, this boy had often been asked why he was called Jezreel, and so he had an answer, kind of on tap, ready to go, and he quoted the word of God, said to his dad there in verses 4 and 5, Call him Jezreel, verse 4, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. See, God had not forgotten the evil deeds that had brought Jehu and his ancestors to power. He would make them pay, and the whole nation would suffer as well. So it's with some nerves, right, that Hosea goes to the next child. Um, He'd heard rumours that the next two children weren't actually Hosea's kids. And so you ask her for her name. She replies, Lo Ruchamah, which means not loved. Now I've heard from time to time some pretty strange names. There was a rock star named Frank Zappa who called one of his boys Lawnmower. Um, Bob Geldof, Paula Yates called one of their kids Fifi Trixie Bell. But this one I think beats even those for like degrees of 
Embarrassment. Imagine the little girl is playing in the park. It's time to go. Mum and dad call out, not loved, not loved. It's time to go now. Imagine the embarrassment and the shame, not loved. What a terrible name. Well, she too has been named by God. Verse 6, Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And then the Lord said to Hosea, call her lo Ruchamah, for I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. And verse 7, you know, Judah in the south would be saved for the time being, at least her time would come. She hadn't at that point in time sunk to the same depths of the northern kingdom, but God would soon withdraw his love for the northern kingdom and he would allow them to be destroyed. Sure enough, Sure enough, shortly after Hosea's death, the northern kingdom was historically run over by the Assyrians. You can read more about it in the latter chapters of the book. And then there's a third child, a boy called Lo-Ami, which means not my people, because verse 9, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Perhaps this is the most shocking name of all. Um, some couples I know have a favourite song. Does anyone have a, a couple have a favourite song that you kind of wheel out at anniversaries and reminisce and rekindle the flame? I don't know. Um, some people do. God didn't have a tune or a song that he'd run out at particular moments that he'd play to his bride, but he had some words. And at times he wanted to reassure the people of his love. And so he'd repeat them over and over and over again. The words that we find all the way through the Old Testament are these. You are my people and I am your God. Played over and over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. It's called the covenant refrain. God's commitment to his people, his love for his people. You are my people, I am your God. And here God is taking those words back. It's as if he takes the tune of the wedding, snaps it in half, throws it away. It's a devastating name. God's patience ran out. Israel had broken their marriage vows. God called Israel to himself. He redeemed them from slavery and oppression in Egypt. He brought them to his own land. He'd given them his law to live. Now that they're redeemed, here is how you are to live. And summarized by the Ten Commandments. And they said to God, yes, we'll keep our part. We'll be faithful to you. We'll love you. But they weren't. And time and time again, they were unfaithful. And now God's patience expired. And if I can put it like this, he retracts his vows. You are no longer my people. I'm no longer your God. Judgment will come. God wanted the Israelites to know that he was angry with them. And so when, wherever Hosea went with those kids, the message of judgment was proclaimed. Whenever someone said, what's your name? They heard the terrible message of God's judgment. But as we will see, that judgment that came in the history of Israel was not the end. But before we come to the good news, we need to take on board that message of judgment and that it's not just a message of the Old Testament. 
It's found on the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ as well, the most loving and the most lovely person who ever lived. He made clear that we've all disobeyed God. He's angry and we deserve judgment. Our culture, even our religious cultures, urges us to believe that God loves us. He's not angry. All is well between us and God. But yet Hosea's word says to us, think again, God is angry Because of our sin, we deserve his justice. God is a jilted lover. God is an angry lover. But even the Old Testament message can't stop there. He's also a faithful lover. Third point, as we pivot to our third and final point, God, the faithful lover. Look with me at verse 10. Yet, yet, there's that beautiful word, yet, in the midst of anger and hostility and judgment, yet, The Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, my people, and to your sisters, my loved one. It is, do you feel that? It's a dramatic change of mood. Such a dramatic change of mood that some scholars say this can't be original. Um, It's too much of a gear change that these words must have been added later. Somehow a scribe came along and popped in these words just to make it feel a little bit nicer. I'm convinced that actually didn't happen. See, the shift of the message from judgment to hope is exactly what we'd expect. See, both messages are derived from a common source, which is God's covenant love for his people, his marriage, It's because he's married them, because he loves them so much that he was disappointed and angry with them as they ran off with other gods. And he has to judge them because they've broken their side of the relationship. But just as the covenant was the source of his anger, so it's also the source of his unfailing love. He has promised them, promised to love them, to be faithful to them. And what God promises he must do. He cannot forsake his own people. He's utterly committed to them in love. That's why this angry God who must punish and does punish is also the same God who draws his people back to himself, redeeming them for all eternity. See, right through the Old Testament, right, we're left with a question. How can God at the same time be faithful to the demands of his justice, judging what is wrong, and at the same time be faithful to his covenant promises to bless a people despite their sin? How can both happen? And the answer only comes in the New Testament with the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh who died on a cross to take the punishment for the sins of God's people that he might redeem them and love them, being faithful to his promises for all eternity. And if we've put our trust in Christ, we can be sure that we are of that people for whom Christ died. He died for us. And therefore we can receive the blessing of living in the light and the power of God's unfailing promises. The Apostle Peter writes to God's people 
God's people in the New Testament that he writes to are a mixture of, of Jewish people and people from all the nations, the Gentiles. And he writes these words, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, echoing the words of Hosea. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Hear this, verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Have you put your trust in Christ? Have you put your trust in Christ? I do hope you have. If you have put your trust in Christ, you belong to God's people. You're his bride. You're married to him forever. And if that's happened in our lives, it must have profound repercussions for how we live today. Just a quick side note, I actually have almost at the top of my page now, don't ad lib, right? But I'm ignoring that for just a second. It is a bit strange, isn't it, as a man to think that we are married to Jesus, yeah? I get that. Just want to put it out there. We need to just kind of get over that. We are married to Christ. If you have put your trust in Jesus, we are married. We are the bride of Christ. And if you are part of the people of God, it has profound repercussions for how we are to live as his people today. I think, if you're like me, we think so little about our disobedience. We think, well, God has died for me. I'm totally forgiven. But just think about the hurt of our disobedience to our divine lover. It's God's bride. We're called to love him. And part of loving him is to do what he says. Not to earn his favour, but because we have his favour. So brothers and sisters, let's remember God through this week. Remembering him should make a huge difference to how we live. It is an enormous privilege to be part of the people of God. It's an enormous privilege. But it's also a wonderful responsibility to live for Jesus and to love like Jesus. He's the jilted lover. Our sin hurts him. It's time we turned away from our sin and repented afresh. He's the angry lover. Judgment must come. We will either have to face judgment alone or if we put our trust in Jesus, we know that he has stood in our place. And he's the faithful lover. Let's respond to his great love for us by loving him and looking forward to the day when Christ returns where we'll fully know what it means to be married to our maker. Let's be longing for the day when John's vision in Revelation 21 comes to complete fruition. Hear this. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your amazing love. 
Father, forgive us for our adultery, for our unfaithfulness. We praise you that though we are so prone to wandering, we thank you that you keep searching for us and you keep drawing us back to yourself and back home. With the help of the Holy Spirit, help us to love you in return and help us to be faithful to you until you call us home. Father, we praise you for the privilege it is to be your people. Father, we pray that you'd help us as your people to see it not only as a privilege and a gift, but also to take up the responsibility that you've given us to represent you in the world. And Father, we echo the words of the Apostle Peter. We thank you that we are your chosen people. We thank you that we are your special possession. And Father, help us to do what you've called us to do, to declare your praises, to declare how wonderful it is to have been called out of darkness into your wonderful light. And Father, help us, we pray, by your Spirit, to keep living for Jesus, to keep loving like Jesus, until we see him and enjoy him forever. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful, and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.